0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 will be in verses 16 through 18 today. It's ironic. Shorter, simpler texts than this morning. Double the pages for it. So it's front and back on the, on the handout. You'll see why. Um, I'm titling this sermon. I'll turn on my mic first. I'm titling this sermon, Constant Joy, Prayer, and Thanks. Constant Joy, Prayer, and Thanks. Last time we were in 1 Thessalonians 5, we saw some verses about congregational love and peace. Uh, Verses 12-15 through had said, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to receive them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, as we said, the uh, admonish the uh, unruly or the um, the disorderly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So there's that theme of love and peace in the sense of all of us put together congregationally. And there's a continuing theme of maintaining peace, but the emphasis shifts now from congregational peace to the inward peace of individual Christians. Um, Let me compare this quickly before we go to our sermon text. Uh, we, We see this dynamic even more clearly in a parallel text written by Paul to the church at Philippi. Um, he starts out trying to correct some disharmony in the congregation, and then he goes straight from that to what's going on in people's hearts individually, their inward peace <laughs> from the Lord. Philippians 4 verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, maybe the, maybe one of the elders, Uh, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so Church of Philippi is a wonderful congregation, but there are tensions. So so agree in the Lord, have harmony. What does he say next? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, I would say something similar happens in this text. He moves from congregational love and peace to do we individually have peace as believers? Uh, how do we maintain that peace? How do we retrieve it if um, it's not really there right now like it should be? So so take that logical connection between congregational peace and personal peace and compare it to our sermon text. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The big idea is going to be really shocking. Like, where did I get this from in the text? It's, here it is. It is always God's will for Christians to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Maybe we could go home now. But no, no, there is a sermon here. But the big idea is very straightforward. I was speaking tongue-in-cheek, obviously, earlier. Not hard to figure out what this text means. It is always God's will, and most commentators, the vast majority agree, when it talks about this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, it's referring to all three of the commands that just were given. It's always God's will for Christians to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Number one, again, very complicated main points. Number one, always rejoice. Always rejoice. I do want to break down each of these three commands and just remind you of all that's really being, well, I'm sure I won't cover it all, but uh, of so much that's being assumed by these commands and implied by these commands. So number one, always rejoice. Notice first that this command assumes that the basis for Christian joy is unshakable. You always have a reason to rejoice. That foundation for joy is always there as a Christian. To to rejoice is to express joy. And the Christian's foundational reason for joy is stable. It does not shift with the circumstances of life. It is what God has given us in Jesus Christ, something which nothing else can take away. Doesn't that fit with what we said in this morning's sermon? That's the foundation for our joy. It's always there. You can always rejoice. First Peter 1, 3-9 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So they're rejoicing while they're also grieved. But they're still rejoicing. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible or unspeakable and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this command assumes that the basis for Christian joy is unshakable. Even when we are grieving, we can rejoice in Christ. Even when we are grieved by trials, we can rejoice in Christ. Secondly, this command reveals that a joyful response is always possible. Not only is the foundation unshakable, we can never say, well, I just can't do that right now. I just can't rejoice right now. This command reveals that a joyful response is always possible. Rejoice always. Of course, a lot of us have the old King James, which is good too in our minds. Rejoice evermore. Same thought, same idea. But the idea is always. <laughs> Not just sometime in the future. Rejoice always. Jeff Wyma, in his commentary, says, In light of the preceding verse, what had just been talking about in the last verse, this means that even when others, whether they be fellow believers or non-Christians, treat them unkindly or harshly, they must not hold on to grudges or in a vindictive way return evil for evil. Remember, it, it just said, don't make sure that no one pays back evil for evil. Do what's good for for each other and for everyone. Um, he says, in light of the larger context of the letter as a whole, so zooming out more in 1 Thessalonians, This means that they must rejoice even when they suffer ridicule, abuse, and even worse, at the hands of their unbelieving fellow citizens. Chapter 2, verse 14. And Paul didn't just command this while he lived differently. Of course, we know Paul and his fellow ministers modeled this kind of joy that perseveres through suffering and mistreatment. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the rep- weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as, as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as, here it is, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. They had great sorrows, but always rejoicing. That great paradox. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. It also reminds me of what Jesus said um, in the Beatitudes as Luke records them. Luke 6, verses 20 to 23. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in, is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Also reminds me of when I say one of my favorite hymns. I mean, how, how many hymns would that be? Probably a lot. But uh, one of my favorite hymns on this topic, Joy and Suffering. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shalt be. Meaning Jesus is going to be everything to me and everything I need. Perish every fond ambition, all I've ever hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me, they have left my savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like man, untrue. And while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends may shun me. Show thy face and all is bright. So this command to always rejoice reveals that we can always rejoice. A joyful response is always possible. We were focusing on some of the most negative things that could be happening in a person's life. And certainly, if we're not at that extremity, we can always rejoice. <laughs> if we're just having a bad day getting stuck in traffic, we can still rejoice. We're responsible too. Third, this command denies that the Christian life is, a, is drudgery. It denies the idea that the Christian life is drudgery. As Matthew Henry said in his commentary, and I wasn't surprised he said it because he wrote a whole book with a similar title. Um, He says, a religious life is a pleasant life. It is a life of constant joy. If you're doing it right, of course. And even if you're not, but you belong to God, God will bring you joy and bring you along. But the religious life is a pleasant life. It is a life of constant joy. He he means true religion, Christianity, living Christianity. Matthew Poole's commentary says, Though God sometimes calls to mourning, that is, sometimes He calls us to weep and lament, though God sometimes calls to mourning, yet it is nowhere said, Mourn evermore. Because rejoicing ought to be in a more constant practice. And all spiritual mourning tends to it and will end in it. If God calls us to weep and lament, it's so that we will have greater joy in the end. But he doesn't want us always gloomy and sorrowful. He wants us always rejoicing. Romans fourteen seventeen 17 says, for the, for the kingdom of God... Life in the kingdom of God, right now, is not a matter of eating and drinking. Well, what is it about Paul? Well, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the Christian life's all about. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You should know something of what I'm talking about as a Christian. Not that... Not that you won't say, "Man, I have a long ways to go, and I want I want to experience this so much more and better," but you should know something about what I'm saying, as a Christian. Christian life is not a drudgery; it's a joy. Well, the second command of the text: always pray, pray without ceasing, or unceasingly. Always pray. Let's not get into s- silly arguments <laughs> about uh, or silly discussions about how. Well, Paul didn't mean this literally. You can't pray when you're asleep, Well, obviously. But what is he saying? Prayer should never be that far from our minds. It should be our constant practice. We should have. Con- we should have. More and more in the Christian life, a constant habit of prayer. More extended times of prayer. Also just uttering prayers on, on the spot, whether in our hearts or out loud. Read your Bible. It has plenty of examples of God's people praying in all sorts of situations. Silently or out loud. Uh, just in the spur of the moment or uh, with great planning. But pray without ceasing. Always pray. What does this command tell us? Well, it assumes, first of all, that we always have bold access to God's throne. As Hebrews 4 tells us, let us then, because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and he's a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. So, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if it's telling us to always pray, it assumes we always have access to be heard in prayer. Bold access to God's throne 24-7. And secondly, it assumes that we always have great need of God's aid. I shouldn't be telling you something you don't know. We always have great need for God to help us in every way. That's why Psalm 105, verse 4 tells us, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. And third, you notice some of these I'm intentionally just going through really quick because I think you know it. I just need to barely remind you of it. But third, this command implies that we must persist in faith that God will answer. We can't pray a little bit and then stop because oh, maybe God's not going to answer this one. We must persist in faith that God will answer. That's part of what it is to pray without ceasing. It's our persistence in prayer on specific things. Luke 11, verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, after he contrasts God with an unjust judge, you, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead to the next one. Um, Get that. But Jesus... Jesus actually had just got done telling about a friend who goes to his friend by night and nags him into answering his request. There we go. Um, And that's a contrast with how God will answer us if we're persistent in prayer. But then Jesus says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, funny how that just rolls off Jesus' tongue. Yeah, I know, you're you're evil. You're sinners. (laughs) If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And here I think he's referring to Not that we don't have the Holy Spirit yet, but the Father will give the Holy Spirit's ministry richly to us, his benefits to us when we ask. In Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? He's saying the question is not what God will do. The question is if you have the faith to persist in prayer. James says, James the brother of the Lord, James 5, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't some superhuman. He was just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, James is assuming his mostly Jewish audience knows the background of that story, that Elijah was simply praying for God to keep his covenant word that when Israel was disobedient to the covenant, he would give them no rain. (laughs) So he was praying in clear accord with what God had clearly promised. Nevertheless, Elijah was praying, God, make it so now. And Elijah was just a man like us. But he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and God answered. So he's, he's just an illustration of the fact that a righteous person, when he prays, that prayer has great power as it is working. Uh, Fourth, as we look at this command to always pray, this command implies that we must resist distractions from prayer. If we're supposed to always be praying, that implies we could be distracted from our proper focus on prayer. We could be too busy. Or we could just be too busy with the wrong stuff. Things that will naturally distract us from prayer. That's part of the being a Christian and using our time well. Uh, now there's balance here. It's not that the scripture is saying the same thing that, that the time management gurus are saying, that um, in some fastidious way, all, each of us has to live life that way. But there is a principle here, Ephesians 5.15-17. through 17, Look carefully then how you walk, that is how you live your life, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm going to bear my soul just, just um, uh, a little bit. Sometimes, when my wife and I know we need to stop and pray at night, we don't feel like it. We would rather sit on that couch and just go at a screen. But sometimes we have to say, hey, first, we need to pray again, together. I think that's a very simple uh, example that we can often relate to, but there's all kinds of distractions from prayer, even things that seem really good. So there's balance here in the Christian life. It's not that we have nothing to do but pray, but prayer certainly is one of our primary duties as a Christian. Fifth, this command demands that we always maintain a godly sobriety. Meaning, things could get in the way of our prayers that aren't exactly distractions. They're just coming between us and God. We don't have the right heart, attitude, and mindset to be always praying. If we're caught in some uh pet sin that's going to get in the way of effective prayer isn't it if we're being stubborn about something with god it's going to get in the way of our prayers if we're treating others wrongly we can't then come to god and say i'm here answer me we have to maintain a godly sobriety if we're going to always be praying there's, there's a line of thought here I want you to catch. that keep, If you look at First Peter, Peter's first epistle, it keeps popping up throughout here. This godly sobriety, this holiness, and then as, as he keeps mentioning it, he ties it to our prayers. First 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So holiness and be sober-minded, he says. Again, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which would be the opposite of holiness, which wage war against your soul. As we'll see, one of the ways our sinful, sinful desires wage war against our soul is they get in the way of our prayers. They, they break the communication lines to a degree between us and our King and our, our Father. Just look at this 1 Peter 3 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Treat your wife this way so your prayers won't be hindered. In 1 Peter 4, 1-7, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They speak badly about you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, in your lifestyle that is, for the sake of your prayers, Peter says. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, of course, I could go to worse examples, but let's just stick with things that we are often callous to in our culture. If if you're constantly willingly taking in the things that <clears throat> all the uh, filthy innuendos and uh, scenarios and entertainment that people just just take in without any discernment, if we are profane in what we're exposing ourselves to regularly, let alone actually jumping in with the wicked in, in the party lifestyle and drunkenness and sexual immorality and all that, but even if we're just, you know, if it's just affecting us because we're just too okay with it, that's not going to help you be a good uh, a, a person who prays without ceasing. <laughs> going to affect your prayers so he says be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers remember james 4 where james says he's talking about people who are quarrel and quarreling and fighting because of their passions at war within them they desire or covet and don't have so they murder they covet and cannot obtain so they fight and quarrel but then he says you do not have because you do not ask So for one thing, we often just don't pray at all about these selfish desires. But then he says, you ask and do not receive. Sometimes you do pray about it, wanting what you want. (laughs) You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We don't have godly sobriety. We're stuck in a selfish cycle of what we must have. And we even pray about it. And God doesn't listen to that, as it were. But the positive side of this is that God, this is not an unattainable thing. It's not as if we have to say, well, I'll always have some sin somewhere in my life. And so God's never going to hear me. No, that's not the point. God receives you in Christ on Christ's merits, not yours. But if you're, if you are genuinely seeking him in godly sobriety, he will hear you. Psalm 66, 16 through 20 Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Rejoicing in prayer. Sound familiar? If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, or the older version that you probably know, if I, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The Lord will not hear me. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. We need to live in such a way regularly that we know we're not cherishing iniquity in our heart. We know it's not getting in the way of our prayers. That means, as they used to say, keeping short accounts with God. And God help all of us with that. None of us have reached perfection yet or anywhere close. But lots of things to think about if we're going to obey the command, always pray. Third command, always give thanks. Or in all circumstances, in everything, give thanks. Always give thanks. This comes really naturally here because prayer naturally leads to and belongs with thanksgiving. You're not praying right if it doesn't lead you to thanksgiving. As Paul says in Colossians 4 two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So always give thanks. This command assumes that God's goodness is active in each of our circumstances. That God's goodness is active in each of our circumstances. If in every circumstance we're supposed to give thanks, there's something to thank God for in wherever we find ourselves. God's goodness is active there. There's no circumstance in our life where I just have to put up with this. There's nothing good about this in God's plan. Not one circumstance like that. Doesn't mean we have to understand how that works or how that is working in our lives, but we have to believe it. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, one thing we know God's doing in all things, everything in our life, every circumstance, somehow contributes to that goal to conform us to the image, the glorious image of Jesus Christ. G.K. Buell says, true, we do not thank God for bad events narrowly viewed in and of themselves, but we should thank Him for such events as they are viewed in the wide angle lens as part of His plan to sanctify us and to glorify Himself. God doesn't expect you to be happy simply because you have cancer or simply because a loved one dies. That is actually a tragedy, what should actually grieve you, and there's something wrong with you if it doesn't. But, as says here you have to view it also in the wide angle lens of God's good purpose for you God uses bad things truly bad things for greater good and that's why we give thanks in every circumstance Ephesians 5 when it says to be filled with the spirit the Holy Spirit um You can see that as being filled with the fruits of righteousness by the Spirit. You can see it as being controlled by the Spirit instead of by debauchery. But then, as it's talking about being filled with the Spirit, it talks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then it it says, giving thanks always and for everything. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing for which you cannot, in some sense, thank God. In some sense. So here's where I bring in my, my other, another verse from that hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, in God's service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee storms may howl and clouds may gather all must work for good to me. Incredible words. The second as we look at always giving thanks, this command implies that we must notice God's blessings. We often don't notice his blessings we're just living our life <laughs> so ungratefully we have to notice God's blessings. if you're still living and breathing here and with God's people in God's house on the Lord's day, that represents an innumerable number of blessings in your life from God that he's brought you this far. Notice them. Notice the blessings in everything. Third, this command requires that we credit God for every good thing. We can't just notice good things and be happy about them, but not credit God for them. Thanking God is saying, God, the credit is yours. I recognize you did this for me. We certainly shouldn't see good things happen in our life and, and get all proud and arrogant. Look at what I accomplished. Be happy in ourselves. No, be happy in God, crediting him with every good thing. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God is always good and everything good comes from him. Well, we've worked our way through the three commands. I have some concluding reminders for us as that was a fire hose of things to think about in our Christian walk, in our lives. About rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. First of all, this is especially for those here who have tender consciences. Um, and rightly so, we should be sensitive to our sins and our failures, in a sense. But let let me remind you, first of all, that our justification in Jesus, being declared righteous in Jesus, frees us from the guilt of our failures here. You are able to, when you stumble, when you realize, "I've I've been a joyless, prayerless, ungrateful mess. You can get up and change by the Holy Spirit's help. And not just be buried under your guilt. It's not going to help you be sanctified by, by just beating yourself to a pulp in your conscience. Let your conscience do its proper work, convict you of sin, but then take that sin to the cross and realize, God, there's no condemnation for me. God views me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's there to help me, not to condemn me. Remind yourself of the gospel. Why we're Christians. Your sin. You can confess it. And it's already forgiven at the cross. And God will keep working on you. He's not going to give up on you in disgust. It's not like any of, anything you do. surprises him anyway. God is for you. Because he's declared you righteous in Jesus. Then Secondly. Let me remind you that Jesus' example to us provides our pattern to imitate. A pattern for joy and prayer and thanksgiving. Notice what Jesus, who was truly man, and still is truly man, notice what Jesus, truly God, but truly man, notice notice how he rejoiced, how he prayed, how he gave thanks. And follow in his steps, as Scripture says. The Gospel of Luke really emphasizes this, particularly on the matter of prayer. We see Jesus at his baptism. You have the references there in your notes. We see Jesus at his baptism, and it was it was as he was praying that the heavens were opened. The Spirit descended uh, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, yeah, that was, you could say, well, yes, that was a high point for Jesus, and he was praying then. But later, when he got really busy with ministry, Luke five fifteen through 16. Now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, verse 12. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Luke nine eighteen. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, "Who do the crowd say that I am?" And then G- Peter confesses, "You are the Christ." Luke nine. When it was when they, Peter, I'm sorry, it was when Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up on the mountain to pray. That as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. The transfiguration happened; his glory shone out briefly. And God again affirmed him as his beloved son, to whom they must listen. Luke 11, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Every time you turn around in the Gospel of Luke, which really emphasizes Jesus' humanity, every time you turn around, Jesus is back at prayer. That should tell us that we can do it, because we are just as human as he was. He is just as human as we are. But he's our pattern, our example. He shows us the way. In Luke 10, 21-22, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And this is in the midst of much opposition too, as well as the successes. But he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus, in prayer, is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, and thanking His Father gives us a glimpse into His prayer life. Third and last, Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit empowers us to bear this fruit more and more not only should we do it as we look at jesus example we can do it because we have the holy spirit to tie it into this morning we have the holy spirit the thessalonians had already as paul said first thessalonians 1 verse 6 they had received the word in much affliction with the joy of the holy spirit It's the fruit of the Spirit that's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5. When Paul tells believers in Ephesus to take up the whole armor of God, he then tells them to pray at all times in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit's power, with all prayer and supplication. To that end... Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, he goes on to say. Jude, verse 20, says that it tells us, building building ourselves up in our most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's in the Holy Spirit that this is possible. One last exhortation. To finish this point. If you don't have this fruit of the Spirit at all. If you truly cannot habitually rejoice and pray. And thank God from a heart that's set free in Christ. You need the Holy Spirit all the more. That's what you need. God calls you in the gospel to look on Jesus. Crucified for sinners. And to sorrow from a heart that's broken by your sin. That'll be the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That'll be His gracious power that frees you from your stubborn pride and your spiritual blindness. So you can plead for God's mercy. You'll grieve your sin, but that grief will lead to glorious cleansing and joy through faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know what real joy and peace are, and to be truly thankful... And to be in communion with God through prayer there's a problem and you need a supernatural solution you need the holy spirit the spirit of grace and supplication as zechariah 12 calls him so that you will look on Christ crucified and mourn for him and a fountain will be opened for your cleansing from to cleanse from sin and uncleanness so don't resist the holy spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's also the spirit of grace and supplication. He can give you a new heart. That's what he's done for us believers, isn't it? Titus 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's why we rejoice. That's why we pray. That's why we give thanks. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the joy and peace that's ours in Christ. And for our free access to you and the fact that we always have things for which to give you thanks. Not just to be vaguely happy about, but to actually credit you with and thank you for. Lord, we ask that you would do your work by your spirit in each of our hearts. Draw us to Christ, mold us into his image. Because to be like Jesus is the greatest joy we could ever have. And to thus have perfect communion with Him through what He's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.